Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and one of the things we quote-unquote pride ourselves on out here is being the, the future, particularly the apocalyptic future. San Francisco Bay Area is, of course, the future in terms of inequality, of um, of, of technological uh, dominance and of the breakdown in many ways of civil and civic society. But the Bay Area may have a competitor when it comes to the future, particularly the apocalyptic future. Uh, Miami um, in Florida is another city on the future and a future which is in many ways very troubling and dark. Uh, Mario Alejandro Ariza is a Miami-based journalist and writer and the author of a new book, Disposable City, Miami's Future on the Shores of Climate Catastrophe. Uh, Mario, is Miami's future apocalyptic? Well, if uh, people don't really start getting their act together locally and globally, then yeah, doom is assured. And what does doom mean? Will will the city simply slip into the sea? Will it will it degenerate into civil war? Well, it, it's in, in Miami. It, it's a pretty watery doom if you think about it. Um, so essentially, we here in South Florida, um, just over the past couple of decades, have gotten already, um, I think, four to five inches of sea level rise, and we're expected to get just as many more by the end of uh, twenty thirty. And so. This is a city that is going to get a lot of water very quickly. And if it doesn't deal with that in an incredibly intelligent way, and if the rest of the world also doesn't stop pumping CO2 into the atmosphere at a rather quick rate, then eventually, you know, it's, it's going to be a little too tough for us to deal with all of the water that shows up. So the, 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 the core of, of, of the Miami apocalypse is the rising sea level which is a consequence of global warming and its impact on, 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 on the urban reality of, of, uh, of Miami's existence. It's, a, it's an urban existential crisis. Is that right? Yeah, that, that, that would be accurate to describe it. I mean, it's, it's sort of like that slowly boiled frog scenario, except that it's, it's a drowned frog, not the frog's drowned. Um, but the issue in Miami is that sea level rise sort of raises the temperature on all of the other existing social ills that the city has either manufactured or failed to address in its existence, right? And when you also throw in the other effects of climate change, increased heat, uh, more powerful uh, and less frequent rainstorms, and also much more powerful, uh, possibly more frequent or less frequent, depending on which scientific people you read, hurricanes, but they're all agreeing that it's going to be more powerful. What you have is sort of like a perfect cocktail for increasing the already yawning gap between rich and poor in a city that has a pretty big gap between rich and poor. 
So in that sense, Miami and San Francisco and many of America's other large cities are fairly alike. Is the inequality in in um, Miami more marked, more visible to the naked eye than in San Francisco? When you walk around San Francisco now, it's made up either seemingly of multi-million dollar homes or homeless encampments. Is 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 the same uh, jarring reality found on the streets of Miami? Mm, I would say that Miami's inequality has a different visual presentation. While there is certainly uh, an outsized amount of unhoused individuals in the downtown urban core of the city, um, Miami's inequality takes the form of a vast group of individuals who are its working poor, right? There is an incredibly vulnerable population here in terms of folks who aren't making ends meet work in the service industry, have just lost their jobs because of coronavirus. And in addition, their homes, by and large, uh, depending on what socioeconomic group or what um, ethnic group they belong to, could sit on either very low ground, which makes them very vulnerable to climate and stresses, or historically, if they're part of the African-American communities here, they sit on the high ground and they're being uh, displaced from the high ground by developers here in Miami. So it's it's not quite the same scenario where you've got, you know, your glitzy new multi-million dollar condo and then, you know, 30 or 40 people in the alley who don't have a house. It's much more that there is a large vulnerable urban proletariat here that is barely making ends meet that, you know, if if a big hurricane hits or if the right conditions in terms of sea level rise and heat stress do occur, uh their immiseration is almost assured. Everybody, I think, listening will be familiar with the ups and particularly the downs of, of Florida politics. Uh, how much of this crisis in Miami can be uh, blamed on political leadership? Well, I, I, I think it would be fair to the politicians to say that there has been a massive failure of imagination, right? Um on the part of, at the very least, Florida's last three or four governors in terms of addressing sea level rise and really uh, most climate change, right? Uh, Florida gets 70%, about 70% of its energy from oil and gas. Uh, That percentage has been increasing. So in, in terms of the big structural changes that could have been made at the state level, Charlie Crist, which was three governors ago, he did some stuff, didn't really do enough. Uh, Rick Scott, who is now the junior senator from Florida, essentially uh, ruled by neoliberal fiat. And he cut so much from the state budget and very also famously uh, didn't allow scientists to use the term climate change when they were working in state agencies for a while. Um, and Rick's, uh, sorry, so, so Rick Scott's in the Senate now, and, and now we've got Ron DeSantis. Uh, Ron campaigned on a platform uh, that included a, a blank of uh, water quality, which is an issue near and dear to Floridians of all stripes. Uh, he actually had a, a chief resilience officer for the state, somebody tasked with sort of tying up all our loose ends and unifying our response to climate uh, shocks and stresses. Uh, but she left after six months and hasn't been replaced. And obviously he's got a bigger hot potato to handle in exploding coronavirus numbers than, you know, 
climate change on the horizon. There's been a massive billion dollar cut to the state budget. So the leadership, I think it is fair to say on this subject, is it, at least in state politics and very much the county political level, often like uh, Florida as a state and, and Miami as a city has had a number of incidents associated with Black Lives Matter. Mm. Uh, but reading your book, it, it struck me that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the notion of Black Lives Matter or Brown Lives Matter is broader than just police brutality. Uh, it can also be thought of in terms of these new urban realities of disposable cities like Miami. Um, is, is the core of this uh, urban apocalypse also, or potential urban apocalypse, is it also um, uh, a, a narrative about racism and uh, inequalities between whites, blacks, and brown people? Yeah. Listen, the racism here is baked in, and it's environmental racism. Um, it's it's housing racism, and it's also you know racism structurally in terms of who becomes the subject of quote unquote legitimate state violence. And there's oftentimes no legitimacy to the state violence. Uh, but take brownfield sites as an example in in Miami, right? Brownfields are former industrial sites. The soil is often um, toxic or needs to be remediated and scraped off and moved away before people can live there. If you map where all the brownfield sites are in Miami-Dade County, a county of 3 million people, it overlays almost exactly with where the historical African-American communities are. And that's just an absolute legacy of the fact that these communities didn't necessarily have enough of a voice in the system when these industrial sites were placed. So what does that mean for them? That means higher levels of cancer. That means higher levels of chronic diseases. Um, that means that they're living in areas that have fewer trees and are more susceptible to, to heat stress, right? And with increasing temperatures, we now have over 100 days a year, over 95 degrees. I think at a 95, I should double check. Um, but the issue is here that if you are capable of thinking about it systemically, it helps it systemically, right? If you see the illegitimate use of state violence against these minorities on the one hand and the way that their environment has been um, sort of structured to focus on, or their environment has sort of been degraded to the point where they have lesser health outcomes. One goes in the hand of, of the other. I think I could have put that more eloquently, but essentially, like environmental injustice is a very real legacy in this city, and climate change is only exacerbated. If that makes sense. And if thing, as if things couldn't get worse, of course, in 2020 they have. Uh, everybody <laughs> knows that Florida now is one of the world's new epicenters for COVID-19, perhaps the epicenter. Um, and so you have simultaneously an environmental and a health and economic and, and, and racial crisis. How is COVID-19 playing out or the, the COVID-19 crisis playing out in Miami, uh, Mary? I know you're talking to me from there today. Yeah. Um, Andrew, I got to say it's absolutely terrifying here right now. Uh, we have a 33% uh, positivity rate. That means one third of the people who got tested in Miami-Dade County came back positive yesterday. I've got 12 members of my family showing symptoms. 
Uh, I have like four or five members of my family that are healthcare workers, right? So on a personal level, there is terror and fear. On a political level, there is, um, as a reporter, right, just the, 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 the kind of like fuzz in my brain from, from, from losing sleep, trying to get the news out every single day about this. Um, and in addition, there's the frustration in seeing elected leadership not necessarily listen to the science time and time again, or put out bad statistics about what is going on and not be completely transparent with like about what is a public health disaster, right? Um, and so when you put all that together, I mean, it's, it's, it's a powder can. And, and you sort of saw it come to a head in terms of the Black Lives Matters protests, you know, and, and obviously people were protesting there the illegitimate use of state violence against minority communities and, and that historical oppression. But I mean, part of the tenor of that protest was just, you know, there's sort of like a drone in the background of like, this is awful and things are going wrong. And, and a political class here has broadly failed to deliver the public health benefits that its population expects and needs, which I think would be fair to say at this point. In historical terms, I think if you added all these things up, you would have revolution on the street as you've had throughout much of Latin America and Europe. For some reason or other, it doesn't seem to happen in the United States. Well, it's uh, really well armed here. Well, that, uh, yeah, and we haven't even talked about guns. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, what needs to happen, uh, Mario, in both the short and the long term to make Miami a less disposable city to address these issues. Because as you also argue in your book, Miami has enormous potential yeah. for its cultural vitality, for its economic innovation. It could be one of the great places to live in the world. And at the moment, it, it, it's, it's a nightmare place. So what needs to change? So in terms of climate, um, I, I point out in my book that there's a narrow path for Miami's survival. And it starts off with um, individual actions, right? Um, people reducing their carbon consumption, or sorry, their carbon extrusion, changing their habits, um, trying to use electric vehicles, trying to electrify their houses with solar panels. Um, but at the individual level, that's not enough, right? You have to organize the structures that make collective action possible. So you need to talk to your neighbors about this. You need to join activist communities. You need to meet up and become as informed as possible. And you need to just become that annoying dude in the room who won't talk about anything else because you know what, this is the future of your city. Um, so at the individual level and at the community level, those are the two things that need to happen. But broadly, um, there needs to be at the political level, municipally, an understanding uh, within elected leadership, because I, I think actually the, the folks who work for the cities really understand what's going on in terms of just the bureaucracy. But at the elected level, they need to understand that if they don't deliver the goods on climate adaptation in the city, they're going to be, you know, facing uh, unemployment as an elected, right? At the state level, I mean, the Florida Republican Party is 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 going to have to really change its its attitude. The Florida Democratic Party, at least in terms of of climate, is is pretty good. Um, but you know, the narrow path for Miami's survival it, 
it, it really means us here down in South Florida getting our house in order and getting ready for the rest of the world to change for the better in terms of reducing climate output, reducing CO2 output into, um, sorry, that's my dog in the background, uh, into the atmosphere. Um, in terms of how the nightmare scenario ends, listen, there's a Spanish phrase, no hay mal que dure sin años, right? There is no evil but a last this pandemic will end. It may not end this year. Uh, it actually certainly won't end this year. It may not end next year. It may not end the year after that, depending on the availability or efficacy of the vaccine. But it will end. Eventually, you know, people will either develop the immunity or the immunity will be available through vaccine. Um, after that's over, folks need to hold their politicians accountable here in San Francisco, anywhere that they fail. And, and I think there needs to be a broad reckoning at every level of government because of the general there's a political leadership at this point. What about uh, the, the coming election, um, the, the 2020 presidential election in Miami? We know that Florida is often the, the, the bellwether state. If, if Trump loses Florida, he will almost inevitably lose the election. To what extent are conservative Hispanic community turning against Trump? What evidence, uh, as well as older people, what evidence do you have that, 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 that Florida has seen through Donald Trump? I, I don't see very many conservative Hispanics turning against Donald Trump, right? One thing that the folks don't realize is that, you know, Miami draws uh, a population of uh, what could charitably be described as the bourgeois of Latin America. And these are um, people with ideological and cultural formations that are already pretty conservative sometimes. So they come here and they have that, right? And you've got the Cuban-American community, which uh, a lot of its um, political ideology, at least in the second generation, is, is um, accurately described by um, Stepnik and Cortez as, as a, a reaction formation, right? In terms of its, of its right-wing ideology. Um, that isn't going away. And, and the way that the, the right wing media sphere is organized and how effective it is, it, it, it isn't tamping down. What is happening is demographic change, right? Third generation Cubans are much more likely to be liberal. Um, second generation Venezuelans who've grown up here for a long time, their parents may be right wing. They're probably not. Uh, in fact, some of the most activist individuals that I know in terms of the Black Lives Movement, in terms of um, climate change, are, are you know these these Venezuelans that have kind of grown up here and there. Um, but anyways, the, the gist of it is that the the right wing Hispanic communities here, right? Um, I, I don't necessarily see much hope for them changing their points of view. What I do think may happen is that a lot of individuals may decide not to vote on election day from those particular demographics, right? I, I really do think that the Republican Party in Florida is going to have a lot of trouble getting the vote out if we still are seeing these kinds of virus numbers come November, or if we're trying to pick up the economic pieces come November and there's still no tourism, right? You know, because what is Orlando without tourism? What is Miami without tourism? And those things aren't necessarily coming back very soon. So I, I do think people will either vote with their pocketbooks or maybe just not vote at all. Very briefly, uh, Mario, uh, what's your sense of the environmental agenda of the Biden team? 
it seems as if they're still keeping their distance from the Green New Deal. Are you optimistic or skeptical that Biden, if he's elected president, will address the issues that you cover so troublingly in your book? Andrew, it's it's my sense that, you know, Biden is always going to try and his team, they're going to try and interpolate the middle ground between um, what the quote unquote center of the party and what the far left of the party is, is, is trying to articulate, right? Um, and so I, I think it's our responsibility if we want to see progressive climate policy that makes Miami a livable city, right? That gives Miami a fighting chance and that at the federal level. It's our responsibility to move the Overton window enough where the middle ground equals Miami survival. I am not necessarily seeing that yet, but I, I do hold out hope that it's a conversation that can be shared. Finally, Mario, everyone should uh, pick up your anything but disposable new book, Disposable City, Miami's Future on the Shores of Climate Catastrophe. Uh, you're stuck in uh, Miami. I'm stuck in Berkeley. What else? Everybody's stuck at home still. What else should people read apart from Disposable City uh, in, uh, in, in, in this hot summer of 2020? Yeah. Well, there's an older book uh, about um, Phoenix called Bird on Fire. Um, you're going to hear some creaking as I pull out um, to get you the author's full name. His last name is Ross. Um, it really helped me think about Miami when I was writing mine. It's Andrew Ross, called Bird on Fire, Lessons from the World's Least Sustainable City. It's back to about 2008, 2009. Um, and it's, it's a great read. Um, but it also breaks down how that particular city is literally going to, you know, sizzle, crackle, and pop in the new climate normal. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.